got the measure passed. Woo! Yeah. Now we passed it with 75% of the voters. Yes! I think it's absolutely outrageous. It's not going to change anybody's drinking habits or eating habits. Um, if anything, I know me personally, I'm going to stock up on all my sugary drinks before January 1st. The measure won by a wide margin. It requires distributors of soft drinks and other sugary beverages to pay a tax of one cent per ounce. Also, I feel that this is going to have an incredible statewide first and then definitely national impact. This, dear listeners, is where we left you last episode, in the city of Berkeley, California, which is the city where Cynthia and I first met. Ah, the memories. But today we're not going to stroll down that particular memory lane. We are going to stick to the soda lane today. So we're in 2014. Berkeley has passed the nation's very first modern soda tax. Some people are already planning to hoard the sugary stuff, and others are saying this is the start of a wave. So was it? Did other cities, even countries, catch that wave? This is part two of The Great Soda Wars. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this episode, we're going to get to the bottom of the real question. Do these soda taxes work? But also, what does work even mean in this context? And why did the soda industry take the entire state of California hostage last summer? What was going on? Not to mention their dirty tricks campaign in Colombia. We are actually going to mention that, Nikki. Thanks for bringing it up. My pleasure. Finally, are soda taxes the best bang for the buck? Are they the best way to cut sugar consumption and all its related health impacts? All that and more. But first, it's December. It's gift-giving season for many people around the world. And as you might remember, we do totally depend on your financial contributions to make this show. It is literally just the two of us doing everything, and it takes kind of an overwhelming amount of time to make these shows every two weeks. But we are not asking for money right now. We have other gifts we'd like from you. Top of the wish list, our listener survey. Hundreds of you have already filled it out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But actually, we need thousands of you. It's short. Really, it will take a couple of minutes. And your answers will help us improve the show. And equally importantly, they'll help us sell the ads on which we also depend. There's a $100 Amazon gift certificate there for one of you lucky survey responders. So please go to gastropod.com survey. That's gastropod.com survey. But that's not the only gift we'd love from you this holiday season. We need your suggestions. We've just launched a really ambitious effort to improve the diversity of voices on Gastropod something we care about and are really conscious of, and we'd like your help in doing better. We are looking for people who aren't always well represented in the science and history worlds, people of color, women, voices that we don't always get to hear. So if you have any ideas for people who are doing great work in science or history, connected to food, of course, who fit the bill, please let us know and feel free to nominate yourself. Send those suggestions to contact at gastropod.com. And not meaning to be greedy, but there's one more gift on our wish list this season. We want your help in spreading the word about the show. Sign up a friend, post about us on social media. And not just once, do it regularly, like even every month. And finally, for those of you who like Reddit, you can post a fun little factoid you picked up from Gastropod on r slash Today I Learned. Lots of you have told us how much you like to share these nuggets with friends and family. If you share them on Reddit at r slash Today I Learned, you can help other folks find us too. We have a couple of sponsors to tell you about. 
Ever wonder what your life would be like if you took a different path? Are you doing today what you envisioned you'd be doing 10 years ago? This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to bring you personal stories of courage, belief in your dreams, and the determination to make those dreams a reality. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired, and celebrate your next victory. Visit ghmummvictory.com to see all 10 stories. Bob's Red Mill offers a variety of mueslis to add to your morning routine, like their old country-style muesli, gluten-free muesli, and muesli cups for a quick breakfast on the go. They also have recipes for muesli inspiration, like chocolate chip muesli cookies and breakfast muesli bars. Head to bobsredmill.com to explore more recipes and get your favorite muesli today. That's bobsredmill.com. Well, we actually began in Mexico around 13 or 14 years ago. Barry Popkin is an economist and nutritionist at UNC Chapel Hill, but his work actually extends around the world. He consults with countries, such as Mexico, about policies that can improve public health, policies like soda taxes. As we just said, in the U.S., the first soda tax to pass in modern times was in Berkeley in 2014. But in fact, an entire country had passed a soda tax just before that in 2013. Mexico. Countries other than Mexico have had soda taxes here and there. Most of them were small taxes, passed for revenue reasons rather than health. But some of the Pacific islands, Nauru and French Polynesia, they had passed soda taxes to try to reduce consumption back in the 2000s. But the reason we're going to focus on Mexico is, well, first, because they're our neighbors. And they're a larger country than the Polynesian islands. But also because Mexico was dealing with a serious health crisis. People had been gaining a lot of weight. When Mexico joined the North American Free Trade Association, NAFTA, in the 1980s, soda flooded across the borders. And obesity has tripled since then. The Mexican government was in a panic. Diabetes was becoming a national threat. The World Health Organization reported that diabetes had become the number one cause of death in the country. So the Mexicans called Barry. It was tough. The Mexican government, working with Barry, they had to get everyone on board, and they had to do it while combating the efforts of the soda industry. But they succeeded. Mexico got a tax, roughly a 10% soda tax. That was smaller than Barry had hoped, but it was still significant, particularly in a middle-income country country. Barry wanted to see a bigger tax passed because he thought it would have a bigger impact. And that was what was about to happen in Philadelphia. Council President Clark. Aye. Ayes are 13 and nays are 4. Majority members President Barry And with that, Philadelphia became the first major city to have such a tax. That's right. On their third try, Philly became the largest city in the U.S. to have a soda tax. Mayor Kenny says the one and a half cent per ounce beverage tax will generate $386 million over five years. This 1.5 cent per ounce tax was the highest in the U.S. to date, and it went into effect at the beginning of 2017. That might not sound like a lot, but here's how it works. Because it's a per ounce tax, a 16 ounce plastic bottle will only cost you an extra quarter, no big deal. But a two liter bottle, that'll cost another full dollar. So one thing that happened early on in terms of an industry effort is Pepsi decided decided that they wouldn't sell anything larger than a one-liter bottle within the city of Philadelphia. Sarah Bleich is a public health researcher at Harvard. And what's interesting about this move from Pepsi is it's a cool side effect from the tax. It also ends up being sort of a portion cap, like what Mike Bloomberg wanted to get passed in New York. So this is all a big success. But for public health advocates, it has been an uphill struggle. For every place where a soda tax is passed, it seems as though there's at least one that's failed or been repealed, like in Chicago. But there is progress. We now have 39 countries with sugary beverage taxes, 
along with cities and counties in the U.S. So now we have all these soda taxes. Mexico's and Berkeley's have been around for a few years. Philly's has been in place for coming up on two years. So it's time to take a look at all those dire warnings you heard last episode. All the terrible things that the industry and people opposed to the taxes predicted would happen, remember? In a statement provided to the NewsHour, the Beverage Association called the proposed Richmond tax regressive and added it disproportionately hurts the most those who can least afford it. Spencer Michaels reported on soda taxes for NewsHour a few years ago, and he heard all the complaints. People don't support soda taxes, don't believe they'll reduce obesity, and don't trust these taxes will go to pay for childhood obesity programs. This will just hurt the poor people and hurt these business owners like myself. It's unfair to people who basically don't have the means of getting out of their neighborhood store to go into the neighboring communities to be able to uh, avoid that tax. If the cost is absorbed by the distributors, then it ends up doing nothing to, to deter people using these products, as the proponents would claim. And therefore, what's the point of them even passing this kind of law? Oof, a lot of doom and gloom. Some of it contradictory. Like, if it isn't going to work, then it can't really be unfair. So it seems like we need to break this down a little. Did the bad things happen? Did any good things happen? Do we even know? Well, scientists are starting to study it. It's early days. There's a few years of data in a few places. So it shouldn't be too long until we have a very robust set of studies that will show what the impact of the taxes will be. But the results so far look pretty good. This is Kelly Brownell, director of the World Food Policy Center at Duke University. He's one of the scientists analyzing all the data now that these taxes exist in the real world. So now we're going to go through this argument by argument and let the scientists say what they've been learning. Argument number one, people will drink just as much soda as they did before the tax, so there's no point in a soda tax. And so, you know, why put this tax in place that's going to have no effect on people's behavior? But there's a lot of empirical evidence from Berkeley coming out in Philadelphia that the taxes do work and that they they are having the, the desired effect, which is trying to get people to purchase fewer sugary beverages with the end goal of reducing obesity risk. Now, in Mexico, we and others were a little worried that the size of the tax was too small to affect consumption. So we were worried there wouldn't be any change or it would be so small nobody would care about it. But in fact, the change in soda consumption was greater than expected, and people seemed to switch primarily to water. What Mexico found is that after about two years, I think the decline was about 10 or 11 percent, with higher declines among vulnerable populations. And it's not just Berkeley and Mexico. Everywhere there's a soda tax, scientists have seen drops in soda consumption. In Philly, the results were dramatic, a 57% drop in soda purchases. And, like Kelly said, people seem to be substituting water for that soda rather than, I don't know, beer or pumpkin spice lattes. Okay, so great. It looks like people have cut out a lot of sweetened drinks, especially in Philly. But maybe everyone's just buying their sodas across the border outside the city limits. Sarah says that's what everyone predicted, that people would just drive somewhere that doesn't have a tax to get their soda fix. What we're seeing preliminarily in Philadelphia is that it exists, but it's not huge. Researchers call this kind of tax avoidance leakage, which is an unfortunate term. And leakage is an issue with cigarettes, but not so much with the sodas. In general, these are very large volume products. We don't see so much smuggling and leakage like we were with cigarettes, where 
smuggling is a big problem from area to area in any in country to country across the globe. Yeah, people aren't lugging many two-liter bottles across city lines. But then what about the argument about jobs? So one of the biggest ones is it's going to put stores out of business. And because it puts stores out of business, employees will lose their jobs. Um, that does not seem to have borne out um, in Berkeley or Philadelphia, although the data um, is still coming on those. Same in Mexico. Barry says that from the data so far, it hasn't been an issue. We saw no changes in overall employment. We saw no changes in what happened in the retail sector. It just people shifted to other products. So it, and they were healthy products in the case of Mexico. Sarah says that there's one industry-funded study that did show that there were like a thousand jobs lost in Philadelphia. But they essentially took all the jobs that were no longer happening because beverage taxes had been put in place and just threw them out. As opposed to repurposing them, maybe someone moves from a bottler to retail, or maybe someone moves from a store to a clothing store. But they sort of pulled them out of the model, and as if to say they no longer existed. Once again, the moral is, industry-funded studies tend to find results that support industry arguments. So the hit to retail and jobs, it's a tricky one to measure, but so far the evidence is that, nope, business is not really taking a hit. But now on to the really important question. Do soda taxes make a difference for people's health? This is what I want to know. This is what the question of whether a soda tax actually works means to me. Do soda taxes reduce obesity? You can't expect to see an immediate change in overweight and obesity. This is actually obvious if you think about it. It's not like you put the tax in place, people drink less soda, and the pounds immediately fall off. Scientists have to model the impacts. They have to project it into the future on maybe a 10-year timescale. They can't see it happening now. These impacts take a while to play out. But even then, the projections... They're not actually predicting a big drop in obesity from the taxes. We expect to see a a shift to less BMI at each point in the population distribution. This sounds a little complicated, but what it means is that on a population level, everyone will lose just a little bit of weight. Overall, Barry and his colleagues say that translates to obesity dropping maybe 1%. That seems tiny, like... Why bother? Well, they say that what seem like small changes in BMI and small reductions in obesity, they'll still have a really important health impact in the future. After all, if you're obese and you drink less soda because of a tax, your BMI will likely shift downwards and your health will likely improve. But you might still be classified as obese. So that doesn't register as a reduction in obesity, but it's still a win from a health point of view. In fact, when researchers projected what kinds of health effects they should see over the next decade, they say the tax will prevent hundreds of thousands of cases of diabetes, tens of thousands of strokes and deaths. They also predicted that it would save Mexico nearly a billion dollars in health care costs in just 10 years. Again, small shifts, big results overall. But the real health benefit? It's preventing future cases of obesity particularly in kids. That's where these taxes will have their biggest effect. Steve Gortmaker is at Harvard, where he specializes in modeling the impacts of soda taxes. And of all the health benefits, he's most excited about prevention. Children aren't born with obesity. They develop it over their early life and childhood and adolescence. And our feeling is that if you really want to make a dent in the future, you've got to begin young every single year. There's nothing magical about any particular year. You just got to slow that rise every single year. Once adults have obesity, it's very hard to turn around. It's not that it's impossible, and some people really are successful at turning that around. But um, we just... 
would like to see a more of a preventive focus. And this is the real point of soda taxes, preventing future cases of obesity. Reducing obesity in the future is obviously good, but what about the argument that these taxes are a regressive way to achieve that goal? This is the argument that soda taxes hurt the poor the most, and that's unfair, because the poor aren't responsible for the inequalities and failures in our society that underlie obesity. So why should they be punished with a tax? In Mexico, the people who drink the most soda are among the poorest. And while overall Mexicans reduced soda consumption by about 10 percent, the poor reduced their consumption by nearly twice that. It looks like where it's having the biggest effect is among low-income populations. It's the same story in Berkeley where um, researchers out there looked at consumption pre-post-tax and found larger drops among low-income populations. And those larger drops in consumption, they translate into larger health benefits. So in that sense, these soda taxes are actually quite progressive. The poor are getting the biggest health benefits. And according to Steve Courtmaker's modeling, soda taxes are also not hurting the poor financially because they're reducing consumption rather than paying the tax. With a tax, they'll tend to spend less of their money on the beverage after the tax. I mean, even taking into account of the tax. Well, okay. Based on the data so far, the case seems closed. We should just implement these soda taxes everywhere. Why haven't we already? Well, as we've mentioned, the soda industry isn't really excited about all these taxes, especially because they do seem to work and people drink less soda after the taxes kick into gear. They're fighting to stop the spread of soda taxes, and we are going to tell you about some of their dirtiest tricks in that fight next. But first, we have a couple of sponsors to tell you about. When the weather gets colder, is there anything better than curling up on the couch with a great bottle of wine personalized to you from First Leaf? By rating the wines you receive, First Leaf determines your likes and dislikes and only sends you wine that you will love. Just answer three quick questions about your wine drinking preferences and First Leaf will create an introductory three-pack of wines just for you. When your bottles arrive, taste and rate them online. First Leaf selects new wines based on your tastes for your next shipment. Choosing the right wine is so hard that only 274 people in the world have passed the Master Sommelier exam since it was introduced in 1969. There are more than 10,000 wine grape varieties in the world. Another reason it's good to have a pro do the choosing. Gastropod listeners get an exclusive intro offer, three bottles of wine for only $15 plus free shipping. If you rate these three wines, you'll get an extra $10 off your next box. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash gastropod. That's tryfirstleaf.com slash gastropod. Cooking with Jewel means no guesswork. Steak, chicken, seafood, eggs, veggies, they all come out exactly the way you like them. It's fun to try cooking new things because Juul helps you make chef-level food without any effort. Cooking with Juul is hands-free, and it's easy to cook for a crowd. If it fits in a large cooler, you can cook it with Juul. So what's the science behind this magic? When you cook food on a stovetop or in the oven, you have to heat the outside of the food to much higher temperatures than you want the inside to reach. That dries things out and denatures proteins. With sous vide, you're heating water, not air. Water is a much better conductor than air, so you only heat it to the temperature you want, and you never have to worry about food being under or overcooked. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code gastropod to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code gastropod. Jewel, perfect food every time. 
So again, the soda industry has fought tooth and nail to keep soda taxes off the law books. In the eight years after Kelly Brownell's anti-soda tax op-ed, the soda industry spent more than $100 million just in the U.S. to oppose these taxes. But here's the thing. Soda sales have actually been going down in the U.S. for a while. And as you probably know, rates of obesity have still been increasing in the U.S. The soda industry actually uses this as an argument. Look, they say, it can't be our fault that everyone is obese, because even when Americans are drinking a little less soda, they're still getting fatter. It's true. And it's true that soda isn't the only reason for the growth of obesity in the U.S. and elsewhere. But it's also true that when people who drink a lot of soda cut out that soda on an individual level and on a population level, they do lose weight. And soda taxes have been proven to help with this. So that particular industry argument is also spurious. But the point is, because of that dip in sales here in the U.S., Coke and Pepsi have been making up for that by boosting their sales overseas, particularly in lower-income countries. According to the Center for Science and the Public Interest, Latin America is now the largest market for soda companies in the world in terms of the value of their sales. The companies have really been focusing their advertising efforts there. And if you think they've been fighting soda taxes hard in the U.S., well... You haven't seen what they've been doing in the rest of the world. My name is Esperanza Cerón. Soy médica. My name is Esperanza Cerón. I am a doctor and I am currently in charge of an organization called Educar Consumidores, Educate Consumers. Esperanza lives in Bogota in Colombia, and that is where we are going now for the next battle in the soda wars. Esperanza was involved in a campaign to get a fairly sizable soda tax implemented in Colombia. The tax was proposed in March of 2016. And Esperanza's nonprofit, they work on campaigns for all kinds of human and environmental health issues. And they put out a TV ad in support of the soda tax. It's pretty eye-catching. It talks about the rise of obesity and diabetes in Colombia and how sugary beverages contribute to these problems and why the tax is so important. There's a graphic moment with an infected foot. This kind of nerve damage can be a consequence of diabetes. But the TV channels didn't play their catchy ad. And they weren't playing it because the Colombian government ordered it off the air. And the government did that because the soda industry told them to. Overnight, the national authority made us retire that commercial from all television channels, arguing that it was deceitful publicity. Not only did the government force the ad off the air, but Esperanza and her colleagues were legally forbidden from publicly talking about the health risks from soda and sugar. If they did, they would be fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. But industry still wasn't done. After all, even though Esperanza had been silenced and the ad was censored, the bill introducing a soda tax, that was still under consideration. Enter the lobbyists. In Congress, industry had posted 105 lobbyists, not only offering arguments, but also resources for the campaigns for the next election. Our team was made up of only five people competing with 105 lobbyists from the beverage industry. Those lobbyists were quite friendly with the Colombian lawmakers. Apparently, they sat right next to them during the committee hearings about the tax, which is against Colombia's rules for committee hearings. Meanwhile, Esperanza's nonprofit was still working behind the scenes. They couldn't talk publicly, thanks to the soda industry, but they were still active, and the soda industry didn't like that. Cuando ya se estaba acercando el momento... 
When we were close to the bill's approval, in the last two months, we began to see people around our office taking pictures. Our computers and email accounts were hacked. Our mobile phones were hacked. And between October and November, I received a number of threatening calls demanding I stay silent. First, these were just phone threats. And then it happened in the street while I was walking. Somebody going by in sports clothing pushed me and told me I should stay silent or face the consequences. And there were two times that people on motorcycles approached me when I was in my car, and they knocked hard on my windows on both sides, saying the same thing, rudely telling me that I should stay silent. It was really terrifying. Esperanza went to the police, and they suggested some things she could do to protect herself, but they didn't pursue the case themselves. We cannot prove, we cannot say for sure that it was a soda industry, but it was the only thing that I was doing that year, that we were doing that year. I was exclusively ta- talking about the soda tax that entire year and the damage that sugar and soda can cause to our health. There was no other thing I was talking about publicly. The New York Times published an article about Esperanza's experience fighting for a soda tax in Colombia. They reached out to the soda companies, which said they were not involved in the attacks and harassment. And the Colombian authorities declined to comment. But even after ordering the ad off the air and silencing Esperanza and her colleagues, and even with all the cozy lobbying, the soda tax had gotten a lot of support and it looked like it was going to pass. But last minute, almost the last day of the year on December 30th, 2016, congressional opponents of the tax stuck that tax in with a big bill that was certain to get voted down. And it did. No tax. A couple of months later, a court overturned the ban on Esperanza's nonprofit talking about the health effects of sugar and soda. So, although she lost the tax battle, she's still fighting. <laughs> we cannot stop because, look, we lost in Congress, but we won in civil society. Wherever we go, people are more aware or are becoming more aware of the negative health effects from these products. And this is something entirely new in Colombia. It was never discussed before we started our campaign. So this is an enormous gain for civil society. Lest you think that this is just a story about underhanded tactics in a country fairly far away and one that doesn't have as strong a civil society as we do here in the U.S., we have another story for you. From my home state of California. A stunning power play at the state capitol. Lawmakers cave to Big Soda with a special deal that bans future taxes on sugary drinks. You could call it a kind of a soda shakedown. So in California... Essentially, the way that it's often described in the press is that the legislature and the governor were essentially held hostage. Let's talk about California. California is the home of a lot of progressive initiatives at the city and state level. And soda taxes were going pretty well at the city level. As you'll recall, the very first modern soda tax in the United States was passed in Berkeley, California. And then other Bay Area cities followed, San Francisco, Oakland, Albany. And yet other cities had a soda tax on the ballot, like the state capital of Sacramento. California had more soda taxes than any other state already. And the trend seemed to be catching. Cities all across the state were joining the soda tax fun. But the soda companies were not going to let this happen without a fight. They spent millions of dollars to get an initiative on a statewide ballot. It's something anyone can do in California if you have a spare $7 million lying around to spend on getting hundreds of thousands of Californians to sign a petition. And this is what their initiative said. Local communities will not be able to raise any new taxes without getting the approval of two-thirds of the voters or elected officials instead of a simple majority. State Senator Scott Weiner and Assemblyman David Chu were interviewed by the local CBS station. Uh, This measure would have required every tax to be a two-thirds vote no matter what which could literally jeopardize billions of dollars of 
city and state services around California. Every new tax. That means new taxes to pay for police or firefighters or transit or parks or homeless shelters or schools or any of the kinds of things we frequently get asked to vote for tax increases on here in California. Side note, voting in California takes a couple of hours, no joke. We vote on everything. This year, we had to vote on whether dialysis center workers had the right to unionize and whether EMTs should be forced to respond when they're off duty. It is really hard for voters to be totally up to date on what all these initiatives might actually mean in reality. So maybe a lot of people would have thought, hey, why not get a two-thirds majority for any new taxes? And they wouldn't have thought about how hard it would make it to raise money for all the government services they need and use regularly. So the soda industry gets this on the ballot. Every government official in California has a heart attack. Then the soda peeps send a nice letter to the California legislature saying, hey, we'll take this off the ballot. If you pass a statewide ban on any new city-level soda taxes for the next 12 years. This industry is aiming basically a nuclear weapon at government in California and saying, if you don't do what we want, we're going to pull the trigger and you are not going to be able to fund basic government services. This was a tactic of political extortion. In his signing message, the governor called the ballot initiative an abomination and wrote that he was only signing the law because it was in the public interest. It does, frankly, seem a lot like blackmail. I mean, essentially, I think that is what happened. I mean, if you if you ask the legislators, did they want to make that choice? It doesn't sound like they do. But it also doesn't sound like they had much of a choice in the process. So I think it was a very, I mean, it was checkmate. It was a very effective strategy by the American Beverage Association. Straight away, places like Sacramento that were working towards getting a soda tax passed, they stopped. So it was a huge win for the soda industry. And the fear from the public health perspective is that we're going to see more state preemption. And actually, that's just what happened. Washington state voted to ban any future citywide soda taxes also this year. As Sarah said, this tactic is called preemption. They're preempting future local taxes. And preemption has actually been a tactic in the soda industry playbook for a little while now. Since 2008, 14 states have passed laws preempting local food and nutrition policies. And on top of that, 26 states have passed something called a Common Sense Consumption Act, which bans any future lawsuits against the food industry for obesity-related claims. This is unbelievable and shockingly underhanded. I mean, could there be a more clear admission of guilt from the soda companies just purely by how hard they're fighting and how low they're going? What's even more interesting is that the soda industry is not inventing these tactics itself. The marketing, the lobbying, the preemption, supporting scientific research that muddies the issue, even the intimidation. They're taking these strategies straight from Big Tobacco's playbook. We actually interviewed Kristen Kearns about this. She's the founder of a new archive of internal food industry documents at UC San Francisco. We talked to her about how you can use these documents to trace direct lines between the two industries and how they fight regulation. And uh, I think that public health, the public health community who's out there trying to um, implement policies and programs to reduce sugar consumption, 
They need to know what they're up against. But we've had to save the rest of Kristen's story about her discovery of hidden food company documents and how they're tied directly to Big Tobacco, because otherwise this episode would last forever. So we'll tell that story in our special supporters email. Of course, your support at any level is super important to us. But if you'd like to receive these bonus emails, donate $5 per episode on Patreon or $9 a month on our website, gastropod.com. We're saving Kristen's story because we want to get to our next question, which is, are soda taxes the most effective tool we have to cut sugar consumption and improve public health? But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Bob's Red Mill, the leading name in high-quality health food. Bob's Old Country Style Muesli is a traditional European-inspired cereal made from a blend of whole grain wheat, rolled oats, raisins, almonds, walnuts, and more. Enjoy it cold like cereal with milk, hot like oatmeal, or in the traditional Swiss way, mixed with yogurt and grated apple and soaked in the refrigerator overnight. Muesli was invented around 1900 by a Swiss doctor named Maximilian Oscar Brucher-Benner as a health food for tuberculosis patients. It was intended as a starter to every meal, not just breakfast. Today, Bob's Red Mill offers a variety of mueslis to enjoy at any time of day, as well as portable muesli cups for on-the-go snacking. If you're looking to make the most of your muesli, Bob's Red Mill also has tons of recipes on bobsredmill.com. Try muesli blondie bites, chocolate chip muesli cookies, even sunshiny pina colada muesli energy poppers. Head to bobsredmill.com to explore more recipes and get your favorite muesli today. That's bobsredmill.com. So for nearly two entire episodes, we've been talking exclusively about soda taxes. They're great. They work. They cut sugar consumption. They help reduce obesity and diabetes. Wonderful. But of course, just cutting soda consumption using soda taxes, that's not the only way to achieve those end goals. In my home country, the UK, there's been a slightly different approach. So back in 2016, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, so our finance minister in effect, announced that he would introduce a a tiered sugar sweetened beverage tax. So that meant that there were different levels of taxation based on how much sugar was in the drink. Adam Briggs is a doctor who studies public health at Oxford University. So you might be thinking, well, what's so different here? It's a tax. You've told us about taxes. So the way the British tax works is that if your drink has a lot of sugar, it's taxed at a high level. If it has somewhat less, it's taxed at a medium level. And if there's only a little bit of sugar, it's taxed at a low level. There are three different levels of taxes. And the other interesting thing about the the tax system that he announced was that it would be introduced after a two-year lead-in period. Um, and he said the explicit intention of that was to allow industry to uh, reformulate their products or change their products such that they can reduce their potential tax liability. And the idea of having these three tiers and the two-year run-up to the tax, it wasn't just to make life more complicated. Like Adam said, the whole thing was explicitly designed to encourage beverage companies to take that two years and figure out how to reduce the amount of sugar in their products so they wouldn't get taxed at the high level. Okay, so we were wondering, is there any data showing that this approach would work? Well, we don't really have any, which is why it's interesting. Yep, the UK is the guinea pig in this example. Nobody else in the world has ever done it before. So when the Chancellor of the Exchequer announced this in 2016, Adam and his colleagues were intrigued. They wondered how the soda industry would actually respond. They figured there were three things that could happen. 
soda companies could just opt to sell smaller containers of drinks, so there'd be less sugar in each container, so it would get taxed less. The second option they modeled in their study, the companies wouldn't do anything. They'd get taxed, and they'd raise the price of their drinks accordingly. It'd be like a regular soda tax. Scenario number three was what the chancellor said he wanted to happen, which is reformulation. Meaning the soda companies would reduce the sugar in their products to go down to a lower level of tax. Of our three categories of of scenario that we modelled, we found that reformulation we felt would be most likely to have the biggest positive health impact. That's right. Adam predicts that reformulation would have a bigger health impact than the flat taxes that get people to drink less soda. After the two-year run-up, the law went into effect at the start of this year. So, what happened in reality? So I am part of a a team that's independently evaluating the the soft drink tax here and our data are thus far preliminary. But one thing Adam could tell us is that option three won. The soda companies mostly used that two-year ramp up to change their recipes and lower the amount of sugar in their sweet drinks. And these are not small companies. This is um, things like Lucasade and Ribena um, and Iron Brew, which are manufacturers of very popular soft drinks over here in the UK. I haven't heard of any of these companies. Nikki, how big a deal are they in England? Yes, they are real. Ribena is a super popular blackcurrant cordial. I feel like it's like ketchup. Everyone has a bottle at home. Iron Brew is basically Scotland's other national drink. It's bright orange and it tastes, well, fizzy and sweet. And Lucozade, that sounds like medicine. That's funny. My mom actually used to give it to me when I'd been sick. It's basically our Gatorade. Okay, so these companies now sell their drinks with less sugar. They've all added artificial sweeteners to replace some of that sugar. This has made lots of British people very unhappy because the taste of their favorite drinks has changed. And while reformulation definitely reduces the calories in a drink, it does raise some other issues like about the health impacts of the artificial sweeteners themselves. Which we are going to come back to early next year, so stay tuned. So Adam and his colleagues are still collecting data, which means that the jury is still out on whether a tiered tax is more effective than a flat tax. So what's going on in England, that is another kind of tax. But there is an entire other way to approach the question of how to help people cut some sugar from their diet. We started working with our colleagues in Chile and the Chilean government, well, actually quite a long time ago. This is Barry Popkin again. He's kind of the go-to guy for a government that wants to try to cut sugar consumption. He worked with Mexico on their soda tax, and then Chile picked up the phone. So Barry and the government of Chile, they all came up with a new approach to combating obesity and diabetes. It includes soda, but it also encompasses all the other junk food that folks are eating. Chile already had a small soda tax. Too small to make much of a difference, Barry said. So now the main tools they're using are these bold black stop sign shaped warning symbols that are printed on the front of food and drink packages. One stop sign if the food has a lot of fat in it, a second if it has a lot of sugar, and a third black stop sign if it has a lot of salt. So at this point, you might be thinking, big whoop, what's so exciting about labels? We have labels on our food. We can read exactly how many grams of sugar are in our sodas. But that doesn't seem to stop anyone from drinking them. As Sarah said, we get confused by these numbers. We don't know what they mean. We don't know how many calories we're supposed to eat or how many we've already eaten. Lots of countries have other kinds of labels, often positive labels, like ones that say healthy choice or low in fat. 
Most of these label systems are voluntary, and most of them have relatively tiny effects on people's consumption and thus people's health. In fact, industry tends to like these kinds of positive labels for exactly that reason. So instead, Chile went dark. These mandatory negative front labels, this is something that had never been tried before. Never in the world. But wait, there's more. It's not just that soda and other sugary foods now have these black stop signs on them. It's what you can do once you have them labeled. Like ban marketing of those foods to kids. So this summer, Chile started a complete ban on marketing. So if your product has a warning logo, you cannot advertise it any time between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Food and drinks with the warning label can't be brought into schools. And food and drinks with the warning label, they also can't have fun characters on their packaging. Of course, the soda industry fought this move. They fought it all the way to the World Trade Organization. But they lost. So Chile actually won this battle. But are they winning the war? What effect has the Chilean stop sign system actually had in terms of cutting sugar and improving public health? It's very big. That's all I can tell you. It's much bigger than the tax. But that doesn't mean we don't need both. We need both. This law kicked in about two and a half years ago, and Barry is still studying the results. That's why he can't give us many details. But he's really excited about this Chilean program, even more excited than he is about what's going on in Mexico or in Philadelphia. Yes, I think uh, Chile will become the first country in the world to reduce the prevalence of obesity. I think it will take five or eight years, but I think... And I'm predicting up to now, no countries, zero countries in the world have reduced obesity and overweight levels. Chile will become the first one. This is gobsmacking. Everyone told us that it was almost impossible to significantly reduce obesity. The prevention was the goal. But actually reducing obesity? How? What is it about Chile's plan that's so effective? Well, one thing that happened is that, just like in the UK, industry changed the recipe of their products. They reformulated. And they made huge changes. For example, we had Fanta. It had a high amount of sugar in it. All of a sudden, they added Fanta Zero to the market. And then, a couple months later, they they cut the sugar in the regular Fanta. And people bought it. But it was a low-sugar Fanta. Industry has enormous potential to do these changes when they're regulated. They don't do them until they're not. Barry told us that purchases of the foods and drinks labeled with the stop signs have also gone down and that kids are seeing way fewer ads for them. The Chilean government has released a lot of ads themselves to help people understand what these stop signs really mean, to help them understand why these foods aren't good choices. There's a fun one with a bunch of little kids where the kids are clearly rejecting the foods that have black labels on them. And based on Barry's research, these ads and the stop signs are working. The kids are learning. He's done a bunch of focus groups, and he gave us a couple of examples of the kinds of things he was hearing. One is the mother saying, uh, this happened by five or eight different mothers. We had eight different focus groups of low- and middle-income mothers uh, with children. My son told me, I, I had to stop buying these things with these neg- these black labels on them. I could only buy healthy food. And the second was her daughter said, Mother, you can't buy any more of this packaged food. I want you to buy salads for me for school. The third was the women saying, I never knew how much sugar was in these products. Now with these warning labels, I know it's really a lot. 
and I'm stopping buying them. Barry still thinks soda taxes are a great idea. He's not anti-soda tax. He's just also pro-warning label. But is one better than the other? I can't at this point tell you because we don't have the kind of data from countries only doing the warning label so that it would be very hard to answer that. What also makes it complicated to compare apples to apples with labels versus taxes is how high is your tax? That makes a huge difference to its impact. Cigarette taxes in the U.S., they're pretty much at 300%. Soda taxes, right now, they typically max out at about a tenth of that. Public health researchers think that if soda taxes were at 300%, they'd be a lot more effective. But Chile's experiment has already proven so effective that a lot of other countries are copying it. Israel, Peru, Uruguay, Brazil, and Barry said a lot of other countries are starting to look into it now, too. What about here? Could we have a Chilean-style warning label system here? Well, experts think it'd be really hard to do. One of the main points of these labels is to use them to prevent companies from marketing to kids, like banning characters and banning advertisements on TV at certain hours. Kelly says that probably wouldn't work here, at least in part because of the First Amendment. That's freedom of speech, but lately it's meant freedom of speech for companies, not just people. But Barry, for one, hasn't given up hope. We can do it. We... It will take a lot of political will. We'll need evidence from countries like Chile and others so that we can fight industry. Uh, We'll need a government that truly cares about the health of the population and realizes that our health care costs are going to continue until we start eating healthier diets and cut the diabetes, hypertension, and all the other noncommunicable diseases that are truly impacting our health care costs. So it's going to be a long battle in the U.S. But it is a battle we still need to fight. Basically, Barry, Sarah, and Kelly all say you do what you can wherever you are, and you still try to push for the best policies possible. A city can't do a Chile-style negative label or even a British-style tiered tax on its own. So a plain soda tax is the way to go if you're just working at the city level. It's horses for courses, to use my favorite expression that no American seems to understand. Nikki, what does that even mean? Choose your thing to suit the conditions. Like a horse that's good at jumping for steeplechase. I'll keep that in mind. And actually, Barry and Sarah say that we need all the horses. Reporters always say, wave your magic wand. What is the one thing? There is no one thing. And so there is for sure evidence on a suite of things that are likely to work. And it's the ability to sort of try multiple things in concert and ideally in a sort of complementary way that is going to make all the difference. And none of them are going to reduce obesity overnight. And that's okay because the point is the kids. We're talking about changing the whole norms of eating and the culture of eating. And that's going to take time. It's not going to happen in two years or five years. It may happen for preschoolers that we'd start them and they... As they get older, eat healthier, but we're going to have to start now to get the next generation eating healthier. We can do this, just slowly, but there's hope. But we couldn't leave you listeners with such a feel-good ending, not when it comes to something like the Great Soda Wars, because you know that the soda companies aren't rolling over and saying, okay, fine, now there are taxes and huge black warning labels. They're still fighting. And now they're trying with international treaties like the North American Free Trade Act. It's preemption all over again. Mexico and Canada saw what was happening in Chile with the negative labels, and they were beginning to think about doing it themselves. 
and the American soda industry was so not into that. They tried to put a clause banning negative labels into the new NAFTA treaty so that Mexico and Canada could never do that. Luckily, they lost that battle. But now the soda industry is trying to put that same ban on negative logos. They're trying to push it through CAFTA. That's our NAFTA-style trade agreement with Central America. So then no Central American countries would be able to use negative labels. In other words, the soda wars continue. But the episode ends. <laughs> God. And as we said, we're actually going to be continuing this topic. We will be doing an episode all about artificial sweeteners early next season. Where did they come from? And are they the wonder product they promised to be? Can you really have your cake and eat it all with aspartame? Before we wrap up today, a final thanks this year to some of our special gastropod superfans who support us at particularly high levels. Stephanie Mama, Rawiwan from Thailand, Bonnie from Melbourne, Tyler McGehee, Karen Shea, and John McCarter. Please forgive us if we messed up your names. We do love you. And don't forget, go to gastropod.com survey and let us know a little bit about you. You might win a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Also, email us at contact at gastropod.com if you have ideas for people who would be great on the show and who can help us diversify the voices you hear. And don't be shy. Nominate yourself if you fit the bill. Huge thanks this episode to Barry Popkin, Kelly Brunel, Sarah Bleich, Esperanza Saron, Adam Briggs, and Kristen Kearns. Thanks also to the fabulous Gabriela Gomez-Mont, who generously volunteered to record a translation for Esperanza. For the past five years, Gabriela has run the lab for the city in Mexico City, which is the coolest urban project I know of. Links to everything on gastropod.com as always, so check it out. You could search for your city or different companies in Kristen's new archive, or check out the soda tax calculator that Kelly created to see how much your city could raise from a soda tax. Finally, Bob's Red Mill offers a variety of mueslis to add to your morning routine, like their old country-style muesli, gluten-free muesli, and muesli cups for a quick breakfast on the go. They also have recipes for muesli inspiration, like chocolate chip muesli cookies and breakfast muesli bars. Head to bobsredmill.com to explore more recipes and get your favorite muesli today. That's bobsredmill.com.